0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 24th edition of the WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney of the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A lawyer's union has sued California over how it hires its lawyers and judges. The state of California employs attorneys, judges, and other legal professionals in more than 100 state departments agencies, boards, and commissions. The union representing legal professionals employed by California sued the state because too many legal jobs are allegedly given to retirees rather than to the rank and file state workers. An organization called CASE, C-A-S-E, which is an acronym that stands for California attorneys, administrative law judges, and hearing officers, in state employment filed a lawsuit in Fresno Tuesday against the California Department of Human Resources. It seeks a ruling that the state is skirting its own rules when it comes to hiring retirees for positions that statutorily should go to rank and file employees. CASE, which represents about 4,500 legal professionals employed by the state, claims that California relies on so-called retired annuitants to fill jobs because they are cheaper, since the state does not have to pay pension contributions and many employee benefits that can add as much as 64% to the cost of hiring rank-and-file workers. According to CASE, retired annuitants are employed to work at the department from which they retired and typically served at that department as rank-and-file employees for many years. California currently employs at least 173 persons as retired annuitants in legal positions distributed amongst at least 50 state departments. However, according to the union, there are state laws that limit the hiring and reliance on retirees. According to the lawsuit, retired annuitants are supposed to be temporary positions, but the Department of Human Resources has allowed departments to employ them indefinitely. So, they say departments also cannot hire a retired annuitant until at least 180 days after their retirement, but the department has not enforced this condition either. In addition, the retiree must have specialized skills needed to perform the jobs for a limited period, according to the union. The union is asking for the court to find that the Department of Human Resources' interpretation of the meaning of limited duration and specialized skills is contrary to state law. A spokeswoman for the Department of Human Resources was unable to comment on pending litigation. And in employment law litigation, a new Court of Appeal published opinion demonstrates how business names issues can be problems for enforcing employee arbitration agreements. In this case, Albert of Villarreal began working for Toyota of downtown Los Angeles as a car salesman in 2015, and his job performance was satisfactory or better. But on February 1, 2018, Villarreal injured his knee and back and was unable to walk without difficulty. He returned to work for about one month where he had to take, when he had to take leave due to recurring pain. He then underwent knee surgery and was placed on medical leave while he recovered. And then when he informed his employer that his medical leave was extended for another three months, his employment was terminated the following day. Villarreal sued his company in August 2020, asserting claims under FIHA issues, including failure to provide a reasonable accommodation and failure to engage in a good-faith interactive process, among other theories. When his employment began, he signed an arbitration agreement, so the defendants filed a motion to compel arbitration a header on the first page of the agreement stated it was between DT Los Angeles Toyota and Albert Villarreal. So Villarreal argued that there was no valid arbitration agreement because DT Los Angeles Toyota was neither a legal entity nor had it filed a fictitious business name statement. The trial court found merit in his fictitious business name statement argument since the California Business and Professions Code provides that a party who fails to file a valid statement cannot maintain any action upon or on account of any contract made in the fictitious business name in any court of the state until a fictitious business name statement has been filed. The employer's motion to compel arbitration was denied on that basis. But the employer appealed, and the Court of Appeal vacated the order and remanded the case to, in the published decision of Villarreal versus LAD-T, LLC. it said that failure to comply with the fictitious business name statute does not make the party's promises agreements and transactions invalid as such. Noncompliance merely prevents a fictitiously named business from enforcing those obligations until it places on record its true nature and ownership. So on May 17, 2022, after the trial court denied the motion to compel arbitration and after appeal had been progressing for many months, LAD-T belatedly filed a fictitious business name statement registering the fictitious business names. Thus, now the employer contended that LAD-T's recent filings of a fictitious business name statement, the trial order should be reversed on that basis alone. Ultimately, the Court of Appeal concluded that the trial court did not err in denying defendants' motion to compel arbitration, but it must address the appropriate disposition in light of the unusual facts before it in this case. The Court of Appeal agreed with Villarreal that defendants failed to act diligently in filing their fictitious business name statement, and provide no explanation for why they would vigorously defend their position that no fictitious business name statement was required, including appealing the trial court's order, and then abandon the position at the eleventh hour by filing the very statement that could have enabled the case to proceed to arbitration a year earlier. Thus, the trial court will need to determine in the first instance whether the defendants have, by their conduct, waived their right to arbitration. The order denying defendants' motion to compel arbitration was vacated, and the matter remanded for the trial court to address whether the defendants have waived their right to compel arbitration. And in another published opinion, the Court of Appeal ruled that cross-examination is required in hearings on workplace violence orders. CSV Hospitality Management filed a petition for a workplace violence restraining order against Germorio Lucas, who is living at the Aranda Residence Hotel that provides supportive housing to formerly homeless individuals. CSV submitted affidavits from four of its employees in support of the petition, who said that Mr. Lucas had been very aggressive and confrontational towards other tenants and Aranda residence employees. Mr. Lucas filed a response to the petition and denied all of the allegations against him. And he stated that he recalled only one disagreement with an employee, which involved a dispute over coronavirus social distancing protocols. A temporary injunction was issued by the court until the time of a hearing which it set, where both parties were to be represented by counsel. At this next hearing, two employees provided testimony consistent with their affidavits, and then Mr. Lucas testified, answering questions posed by his attorney. In his testimony, he denied the allegations that one of the witnesses had leveled against him, asserting that he was harassing him and that he had repeatedly asked the witness to leave him alone. Then Lucas's counsel requested an opportunity to cross-examine the employer's witnesses, but the trial judge denied the request, concluding that the hearing was not a court trial and that there was no authority to allow cross-examination at such a hearing. The trial court then granted a three year workplace violence restraining order, which Mr. Lucas appealed, and the Court of Appeal reversed and remanded in the published case of CSV Hospitality Management versus Lucas. It said the California Code of Civil Procedure authorizes any employer whose employee has suffered unlawful violence or a credible threat of violence from any individual that can reasonably be construed to be carried out or to have been carried out at the workplace to obtain a workplace violence protective order. The Code provides that injunctive proceedings are procedurally truncated, expedited, and intended to provide quick relief to victims of civil harassment. However, in injunctive proceedings, respondents are still afforded the right to present their case. Courts have observed that the procedure for issuance of an injunction prohibiting harassment is self-contained. There is no full trial on the merits to follow the issuance of an injunction after the hearing provided by the Code of Civil Procedure. So that hearing provides the only forum the defendant in a harassment proceeding will have To present his or her case. It went on to say that to limit a defendant's right to present evidence and cross-examine witnesses would run the risk of denying such a defendant's due process rights and would open the entire harassment procedure to the possibility of successful constitutional challenge. The workplace violence restraining order was reversed and the trial court was directed to issue an order terminating the restraining order, reinstating the prior temporary restraining order, and setting the matter for a new hearing to allow Mr. Lucas to cross-examine the witnesses. And now our crime report. The highest paid UCLA doctor has been convicted of patient sexual assaults. Jurors convicted 65-year-old James Mason Heaps, M.D., an obstetrician and gynecologist formerly employed by the University of California, Los Angeles, on five counts in connection with the sexual assaults of some of his patients. Jurors found Dr. Heaps guilty of three counts of sexual battery by fraud and two counts of sexual penetration of an unconscious person. And he was acquitted on seven other charges pending against him the jurors could not reach a unanimous verdict on nine other charges against him and at this time no decision has been made by prosecutors on whether or not to retry on the hung counts so a sentencing hearing is set for november 17th dr heaps served as a gynecologist oncologist affiliated with UCLA for nearly 35 years, and at one time was reportedly the highest paid physician in the UC system and had treated about 6,000 patients. About more than 500 lawsuits were filed against Dr. Heaps and UCLA, accusing the school of failing to protect patients after becoming aware of the misconduct. Last May, attorneys for 312 of his former patients announced a $374 million settlement of abuse lawsuit against the University of California. That settlement came on top of a $243.6 million resolution of lawsuits involving 200 other patients announced the prior February and a $73 million settlement of federal lawsuits reached last year involving roughly 5,500 plaintiffs. These lawsuits allege that UCLA actively and uh, deliberately concealed Dr. Heave's sexual abuse of patients. Settlement of the federal case last year required UCLA to ensure stronger oversight procedures for identification, prevention, and reporting of sexual misconduct. In March of 21, excuse me, in March of 2021, in a similar case, USC agreed to pay more than $1.1 billion to about 17,000 former patients of ex-campus gynecologist Dr. George Tyndall. This is the largest sex abuse payout in higher education history, 75. Four-year-old Dr. Tyndall has pleaded not guilty to 35 criminal counts of alleged sexual misconduct at the university's Student Health Center. That case, that criminal case, is still pending. And in regulatory news, according to National Labor Exports, California's laws targeting wage theft, which is the failure by bosses to pay workers what they are owed, make California a leader among states, but in practice, enforcing those laws has not been easy for California. Just last year, legislators made certain instances of wage theft a felony and also set their sights on wage theft in the garment industry by eliminating some longstanding pay practices that often resulted in workers being paid below the minimum wage but state officials and lawmakers say the Labor Commissioner's Office, the California agency overseeing wage and hour violations, has been too short-staffed to do its job, a problem that worsened during the pandemic and subsequent labor shortage. Last year alone, California workers filed nearly 19,000 individual claims with the agency, totaling more than $338 million in stolen wedges. Many of these claims take three times longer than the legal minimum of 135 days to resolve. And according to a report by CalMatters, nearly a third of the Labor Commissioner's positions were vacant this May. In this August, a spokeswoman for the Labor Commissioner's office told CalMatters that the office had hired 288 additional people since January 2021, but did not say how many people had less left the office during that period. The Labor Commissioner's budget this year is $166 million, enough funding for nearly 840 positions. Experts and legislators say California's bureaucratic hiring process and below market salaries are complicating its hiring efforts and that the state's hiring and retention issues that agencies enforcing labor laws have existed for years. The Little Hoover Commission, California's bipartisan oversight agency, studied wage theft back in 2015 as part of an investigation of California's underground economy. The study found that back then the state investigators across agencies are paid less than those in police forces and office re- often require more training and education. And the report found that the state's hiring processes for such jobs can take up to a year, making hiring frustrating for all parties. Several Pharmacy benefit manager companies have had long-standing litigation battles with several states over states' rights to govern them, and more are working their way through the court system. Back in 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously agreed with the arguments in a California-led bipartisan amicus brief filed by 46 attorneys general, which supported the state of Arkansas's position that federal law does not prevent states from regulating pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. Then last year, California joined a coalition of 34 attorneys general in filing an amicus brief in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit supporting North Dakota's regulation of PBMs. And now this October, The California Attorney General announced joining a coalition of 35 Attorneys General in filing an amicus brief in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit in support of Oklahoma's authority to regulate pharmacy benefit managers. PBMs act as a middleman between pharmacies, drug manufacturers, health insurer plans, and consumers. This position allows them to have a significant impact on consumers' access to affordable prescription drugs. Over the years, PBMs have expanded into a multi-billion-dollar industry. The California Attorney General claims they have done nothing to lower the prescription drug prices paid by health plans to drug manufacturers. So it says states like California have increased their regulation of PBMs to protect residents from the rising cost of prescriptions. The Coalition of 35 Attorneys General just announced that they have filed their amicus brief in the Oklahoma case of Pharmaceutical Care Management Association versus Glenn, Mulready, and others. This is pending in the United States Court of Appeals for the 10th District. The backstory is that in 2019, the Oklahoma legislature passed the Patient's Right to Pharmacy Choice Act to protect Oklahomans' access to pharmacy providers and protect pharmacies from self-serving practices of PBMs. The new law was soon challenged in court by the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association, known by the acronym, acronym PCMA the Pharmacy Benefit Managers Trade Lobby. In early April, the U.S. Court for the Western District of Oklahoma ruled largely in favor of the state of Oklahoma and Insurance Commissioner Glenn Mulready upholding most of the Oklahoma statute against a federal preemption challenge. So PCMA appealed that decision to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 10th District asserting that only four of the provisions are preempted by ERISA and Medicare Part D, retreating from the 14 it originally had challenged. This week, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that the COVID-19 state of emergency will end on February 28, 2023, charting a path to phasing out one of the tools that California has used to combat COVID-19. This timeline gives the health care system needed flexibility to handle any potential surge that may occur after the holidays, also providing state and local partners the time needed to prepare for this phase-out. As the state of emergency is phased out, what is known as the SMARTER plan will constitute the guide to California strategy. The essential elements of this plan are spelled out by the plan's acronym, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, smarter. S stands for shots, as vaccines are the most powerful weapon against hospitalization and serious injuries. M is masks, where properly worn masks with good filtration helps slow the spread of COVID-19 or other respiratory viruses. A. Awareness. We must continue to stay aware of how COVID-19 is spreading, closely tracking evolving variants, communicating clearly how people should protect themselves, and coordinate our state and local government response. R stands for readiness. COVID-19 is not going away, And we need to be ready with tools, resources, and supplies we will need to quickly respond and keep the healthcare system well prepared. T is testing, getting the right type of tests, PCR or antigen, to where they are needed most. Testing will help California minimize the spread of COVID-19. E stands for education. California will continue to work to keep schools open and children safely in classrooms for in-person instruction. And finally, the R stands for Rx, evolving and improving treatments, which will become increasingly available and critical as a tool to save lives. The latest progress update on the implementation of the California Smarter Plan has just been published this October. Cal-OSHA, California's Division of Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board, met last April and formally adopted the third readoption of its COVID-19 emergency temporary standard. But the ETS has no set rules for close contact exclusion from the workplace. Instead, it requires that employers review current California Department of Public Health guidance regarding quarantine or other measures to reduce transmission, to develop, implement, and maintain effective policies to prevent COVID-19 transmission from close contacts. So this October 14, 2022, the California Department of Public Health published an order which updated the definitions of close contact and infectious periods to provide entities strategies to prioritize response to potential exposures in the workplace and elsewhere. This order went into effect on October 14, 2022 at 12.01 a.m. Following the new CDPH order, cal issued a 15-day notice with a request for written comments on proposed updated COVID-19 regulations to embellish this new standard. Written comments on the Cal-OSHA proposal are invited, but must be received by 5 o'clock p.m. on October 31, 2022 at the Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board Office. And in medical news, Sutter Health, a Sacramento-based healthcare care service provider, and its affiliate Sutter Bay Hospitals, agreed to pay more than $13 million to settle allegations that it violated the False Claims Act by billing the United States for toxicology screening tests performed by an outside lab. The United States alleged a contract which the Sutter Health Hospital Alta Bates Summit Medical Center entered into with Navigant Network Alliance was to refer its urine toxicology specimens obtained from physicians and laboratories to them but then Sutter submitted bills for reimbursement of the qualitative and quantitative testing it performed on the specimens, on thousands of specimens it referred under this agreement, and was then paid for testing by the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, Medicare, Medicaid, and TRICARE. Sutter now agrees in the settlement agreement to pay in excess of $13.9 million to settle false claims allegations brought by the government. The settlement is a result of a coordinated investigation between the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of California and the FBI, as well as other agencies. And the National Council on Compensation Insurance published the first of four installments, in its series on inflation and workers' compensation medical costs with state-specific information. An updated Consumer Price Index this August 2022 showed an inflation rate that increased to 8.3% over the previous 12 months in the Consumer Price Index. This raises the key question, how is the current inflationary environment affecting the work comp medical costs. Two factors drive changes in medical claims costs, the price of medical services and the utilization, which measures the mix and number of services provided to an injured worker. NCCI's most recent medical data shows that drug costs are declining. Physician costs are up slightly and facility costs are rising the most in workers' compensation systems. In recent years, facility services are the dominant contributor to changes in work comp medical costs across regions, most predominantly in the southeastern region. Between 2012 and 2021, countrywide work comp medical costs increased at 2% a year and the southeastern and midwestern regions grew the fastest at 2.3% and 2% respectively. The other regions, northeastern and western region, which includes California, saw overall medical costs per claim growing at a slower average annual rate of 1.5% and 1.4% respectively. The regional comparison charts indicate that in all four regions, the work comp paid medical trends have been increasing at a slower pace than the corresponding regional computer price index.m indexes. This is particularly the case in the north, eastern, and western regions. Future estimates of this study will expand on each of the different types of medical services discussed here, physicians, facilities, and prescription drugs. Subsequent articles in this series will include more in-depth regional differences in cost changes and details about the makeup of the underlying services. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.